Before we get into the Kevin Kovac podcast this week, support for the Rigsby Report is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the -the below-the-waist grooming champion of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your gentlemen, your gentlemen's, Yours? Your gentleman's family jewels. Precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. That's right, the fourth version of this thing. It has to be good. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer, 20% off the purchase price, and free worldwide shipping when you go to Manscaped's website or their app and punch in D-O-D and get 20% off and free worldwide shipping. And I say this every week, and I mean it. I'm a very transparent dude. I'm open. I'm an open book. I'm honest about everything. I use this product. You should use this product. You can't be a dude who's not trimming down there. Your lady does not want that. You don't want that. Get Manscaped, the Lawnmower 4.0. Very, very important. New sponsor for the Rigsby Report this fall. And, and apparently, the, 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 the lawnmowers are flying off the shelves. They've signed back on all the way through the beginning of 2022, so we must be selling them some product. Manscaped, the official groomer sponsor of the Rigsby Report. All right, let's go. And most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is the Rigsby Report podcast for the third week of October. Thank you for listening. I continue to be just thrilled with our listenership. Literally tens of thousands of people listening to the podcast every time I put one up. It grows every time, and I, I'm happy. You know when you're you're a creative person and you have an idea for a piece of content, you want people to like it, right? You want people to like as, like it as much as you do. And I'm happy, as I was saying, because I think so far – We've hit on that. So many of the podcasts that we've done, you know, have been sort of these in-depth, honest interviews with drivers and crew members and industry people. And there'll be a little bit of that today. But as a huge consumer of sports media that I am, I also wanted to just do a few of these that were, you know, expert podcasts, meaning have an expert who works in the sport on ESPN style like an Adam Schefter and pick their brain about dirt late model racing and go from there. We are doing that today with the one and only Kevin Kovac. Now listen, everybody knows how I feel about Todd Turner. To me, Todd is without question. Uh, He'll forever go down as the greatest dirt late model journalist and reporter in the sports history. He is the goat of all goats and that will never change. However, let's start an appreciation tour for Dirt on Dirt's own Kevin Kovac also. When I'm out at the races and people stop and tell me all the time things they like and don't like about DOD and flow, I truly mean this. Kovac's weekly column, Inside Dirt Late Model Racing, which it's titled, is easily one of the things I hear the most. Man, we love the job Kovac does. Geez, Kevin has so much detail in his store, and he's such a great writer. And on and on about Kovac, as we call him, You know, really all the time, his greatness as a writer we call on all the time at Dirt on Dirt, and they're right. People call it to attention all the time, and I'm glad there there are people out there not just paying attention to the moving pictures that Derek and I are putting out there, but recognizing how great Kevin is as a writer. His attention to detail, his ability to pull the story out of a subject, dig that layer deeper than a lot of people do. I'm not joking when I say this. It's really, really impressive 
and I do hope to the late model world, they seem to, but I hope they continue to appreciate what they have asset-wise here that Kevin Kovac is working in our sport. He is that good, not only in his weekly column, but on-air stuff he does uh, with us, you know, the, the video cast and everything else. I'm, I'm very proud to call Kovac a friend and a colleague. And also, his back, you know, we are going to break down dirt late model racing, but his background is very interesting. We'll touch on that a bit before we get into all the inside baseball stuff, but I'm excited to have about 60, 60, 70, 80 minutes here with, with my good friend and great writer, Kevin Kovac. Joining me now on the Manscaped hotline is a guy who, for some reason, has chosen to be a Detroit Lions fan. Like, this person has made the willful choice in life to support the Lions and suffer that fate year after year. Joining me is my good friend and noted Detroit sports enthusiast, Kevin Kovac. Kovac, we have a text thread every Sunday. It's me in turn as Bears fans. Derek is a Packers fan, so obviously that didn't go well yesterday. We're recording this on a Monday. You as a Lions fan, I just want you to know that I do really feel for you. Not that the Bears are a great franchise or anything, because we're not, but I, I do feel the bizarro twists of the knife that Lions fans have to feel. They seem to lose in ways only Lions fans and Lions can lose in. I'm sorry. I just wanted to tell you that I, I don't understand why you've chosen this face, fate, and I'm sorry that you have to experience it every Sunday. Yeah, well, I thank you for that, be, for, for, for your sympathy, because uh, I need it, you know. But I, uh, just quickly, I, I was a kid, you know, early 80s there, and I had a relative <laughs> that lived in outside of Detroit. I remember him bringing me a sweatshirt that was the Detroit Lions, and <laughs> was back in the Billy Sims days, and they were on Thanksgiving, you know. And like, ah, I don't, I'm like, I grew up in New Jersey. I don't want to root for the Giants or the Jets or the eagles i didn't i never liked them i should have root for the steelers probably you know and i would have had some excitement over my years but just became a lions and tigers and and pistons fans and and other teams have given me some joy you know but lions i have one playoff win in my entire life which is a lot of like <laughs> lions fans but just from 1991 i was still in college you know i was a freshman so i can always remember that but Everybody always tells me, I know how it feels. I mean, I'm a Redskins, you know, well, I'm sorry, not Redskins anymore, Washington's football team. <laughs> right. But, uh, right. But, uh, but I'm a, you know, I'm a Washington, I'm this, I'm that. And I'm like, you don't understand at all. I have <laughs> one playoff win. I remember you a few years ago when they were playing the, the Cowboys saying, oh, they're just going to lose. The Lions will lose in the second round anyway. Don't worry about it when they got a bad call. And I'm like, <laughs> I just want one playoff win. That's it. Just one. That's like a Super Bowl to me. But. I digress. <laughs> uh, no, I love I love the the passion there, right? I, Aaron Rodgers. At least Aaron Rodgers didn't uh, look you right in the eye yesterday and tell you he owned yeah. you like he did with me and my fan base uh, yesterday. So, not no, that, that he did. the Lions actually have a little better record against Rodgers than the Bears do. So that's uh, I don't know what if that's more depressing, yeah, better, that's or worse. Only because Rodgers fell got hurt a few times playing you know, before true. the Lions played him. I think that's it. That's it. That was the only reason. <laughs> okay, uh, I mentioned in the open. I really want this podcast to be as much about you and I diving into the sport, right? You're Adam Schefter, kind of is the way I look at it. And you and I are going to dive in and, and talk about this season and next season coming up. But I do want to give the people at home a little Kovac background. You know, I tell people all the time my story. I, I, I'm one of those Illinois kids. I grew up in the shadows of Fairbury. I was born and raised a late model guy. Uh, you know, all of those things. Give us your story, Kevin. The, the, you mentioned New Jersey in there. Give us the Kevin Kovac background story, sort of how we arrived at where we are today and in your upbringing a little bit. Yeah, I grew up in like, you know, New, Central Jersey, Raritan, New Jersey it is. Uh, 
Uh, you know, it's probably you know, right by our train station. Now you can go to New York City and probably be there in you know an hour or so. Uh, now you just three doors down from me. You just walk up there, get on the train, and, and you can go to New York. But um, uh, and 15 minutes to the, to the other way was was Flemington, uh, New Jersey, and that's where Flemington Speedway was. You know, and, and uh, you know, a really pretty famous dirt track. Not there anymore after it went asphalt in 1990 or whatever. But uh, and it closed in 2000. But my father, he'd always went to races a lot. I mean, he was never like a huge race fan, but he went to races and he'd go and, uh, and, and uh, a quick story of exactly how I went to my first race. It, it was 1982. I was nine years old. And at that point I had always been like, I'm not, I, I can't remember this. I remember seeing like the Indy 500 was one of the things that was on TV then more than NASCAR really. And I said, I'm not going to the Indy. I'm not going to the race until I, Indy cars are at Flemington. I only <laughs> wanted to see Indy cars, you know. I, I don't know why, but I mean, that's what, that's what I wanted to see. And my father was like, "Oh, you should come here. Bring, God bring you one time." And anyway, it was uh, during the Flemington Fair Labor Day weekend one year, and, and they and my father and my mother's sister, you know, my aunt uh, who who actually went to she liked the races too. My mother wasn't too much involved with it, uh, going that too much at that time. Uh, I went with my, my father and my aunt and we went to the demo derby in the afternoon at Flemington. And then it was going to be at night. We was going to be the big block modifieds were going to be racing, but my mother was going to come pick me up and, the, and my father and aunt were going to stay. And my aunt was like, we're not going outside and waiting for your mom to come. We're not going to go out there and call her and everything. So I ended up having to stay at the race that night, ended up seeing this driver named Billy Pouch in the <laughs> L car that he had, you know, like we were, we walked around the fairgrounds and we saw the cars. Everybody had open trailers then, you know, in 1982. And they were all just waiting to come in. And then I remember seeing this L, his, his car was literally, it was the L. That was this number. And then everybody always say it, it, it goes like L, you know, it goes like hell. But, um, and uh, so he, Billy was sitting in the, in the cab of the car and my father said, yeah, it's Billy Pouch. He's the big guy here. And I said, Hey, you're going to win Billy. And Billy's like, yeah, thanks, thanks kid. You know, <laughs> he won the race and I was a Billy Pouch fan and, and a big box fan after that. I went to another, he won the 200 lap where I went to at the end of the year. And, and then the next year I started going and uh, Flemington every week. And then we went to East Windsor Speedway in New Jersey. We went to Nazareth Raceway in Pennsylvania, Orange County in Martin. And, and, you know, we started just going all over the place. And next thing you know, I'm 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 in, I'm in it. I'm I'm big time big block guy. What know? was the what <laughs> was the what was the transition from like okay because you know you're nine years old that's pretty young to start but obviously your dad was a little bit of a race fan he gets you into it. what was the transition of and I think our stories may be similar here I just picked up everyone calls you Scoop when I was a kid everyone called me Scoop which is funny I just picked <laughs> yeah. up a note like I I had like this kind of hunger to to document things more. And that's why I picked up a notebook and my life and reporting began that way. How, how did it start for you, Kevin? How did you go from nine-year-old Kevin Kovac is an amazement of Billy Pouch, which we'll talk about later. Uh, it, how did that, how did that go from that to now Kevin Kovac? Cause I think you started at area auto when you were really young working. How did you become kind of in that reporter vein? Well, I, I don't know. I just kind of liked, I mean, I remember writing like, you know, like a reporter essays and, in school, elementary school, middle school, it's saying like, I wanted to be a reporter, you know, uh, maybe NBA or NFL or something, sure. not necessarily dirt track racing. But, um, uh, and then I it was probably like back in, I, I, when I started going to the races, 85, 86, it, I, I remember I would come uh, during days at home. I would be like so much into, 
I'd create my own, I'd draw like, this is going to be my racetrack, you know, I'd draw, like, this is how I want my racetrack to be laid out. I'm going to, you know, have this and the the fan section and stuff. And, and I started, you know, taking, you know, keeping track of every Billy Pouch race, where he started, where he finished, everything. I mean, I still have some of those notepads, by the way. You know, <laughs> I'm not I shocked. Go back and look at this, you know, <laughs> if anybody wants to know in the 80s what he did. But, uh, you know, and, 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 I, and then back in 86, I think it was, uh, we started seeing Billy all the time at the races. And, and he'd ask, you know, like, hey, you, he had a, we used to have a racing party, like a lot of guys still have during the winter and said, Hey, you want to write it like a season review for my, my racing party that will hand out and just say, and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. So like for two years, I, I wrote the Billy. Powell How old were you when thing. that, when that happened? I, that had been like 13, 14 <laughs> oh, about when I was doing that. So I got, I mean, that was pretty cool to be able to like, you know, see your hero driver and, and write some stuff. And, and then also, and then a little right around that time, one of the kids I hung around with at the racetrack was this Ty Swanson. And his mother, Buffy, was a big writer for, you know, the Speedway scene and the a big modified writer. Probably the, the big modified writer at that time. She wrote for Speedway scene out of New England, did a column in that. And she wrote for, uh, which was Stock Car Magazine then, Speedway yeah. Illustrated. Um, so, I mean, I, I, was, I was hung around with him. You know, we, I, hey, we used to run around the East Windsor Speedway bathrooms every Friday night <laughs> and, like, keep points and stuff. I mean, we got, like, we have a program almost for this. You know, we be like, hey, you know, we'd, we'd have 200 lappers around there sometimes. So I was in good shape then, I guess. So I had all that running. <laughs> but, but anyway, we, uh, uh, so like knowing Ty and then knowing Buffy, I saw her writing and got to know her. And, and, and I wanted to, and when I was 16, uh, 1989, I wanted to, it was either kind of like get a job like for summer at that point. Uh, so I kind of said, Hey, come on, I'm going to, maybe I can write for every auto races. Not that I'm going to get paid, but I would be able to get in free to the races. <laughs> it would be an excuse to go to the race. Classic, like young like, kid, Man. right? Like, I don't need to get paid. Just let me in free. We all make that mistake as journalists when we're young, right? We all, right, <laughs> uh, right exactly. And then, so Lenny Sammons uh, at Area Auto Race News in, in Trent, New Jersey, he gave me a shot. I mean, there's been some other younger kids and, and that, and I also had, uh, you know, Buffy Swanson. I mean, I was able to talk to her and, and, and ask her and she kind of gave me pointers and I met other guys, the writers that would, that would give me pointers about what I should do and how I should uh, write. And, and I started, my first race that I wrote about was Ariato back. It was at Ransomville Speedway in New York in, in the summer nationals race in, um, in, uh, for, uh, summer nationals in July, I think it was of that year, 89. And, and I started, and then, I had to do, I had to type it on a typewriter when I first started too. I mean, I had to do this, type the story up and then fax it or, or, uh, express mail it to Ariato. And then after a couple of weeks of that, though, Lenny Sammons at Ariato was like, yeah, he's writing a lot of stories. I said, I went to all the super dirt series races <laughs> in New York and he's like, why don't we get him a little computer? So he got me the little, you know, Tandy computer, which I had a little <laughs> couple lines on it so that I could plug it into the phone, send the stories. And and it just went from there, you know, kind of went the next, the next year while I was in the, uh, the next year, I, two years later, well, next year I wrote for a trackside magazine that started up in the Northeast, started doing a column for them. And then I wrote for the daily paper about Flemington, uh, the locally for me and just started doing more, more and more stuff, you know, and, and, uh, and after I graduated college in, in, in 95, uh, 96, I started, uh, 
uh, at Ariato full time, you know, and that was that kind of expanded me out from big blocks. I mean, I got to go all over the place and cover everything for the racing paper. How many years were you at Ariato, and then what year did you take? Because we uh, dirt on dirt, we hired you away from World Racing Group. You were the PR man for World of Outlaw Late Model Series. How many years were you at Ariato, and then what year did you take the outlaw job, and how long were you there? Yeah, I started working at Ariato full time. I think it was April of '96. Uh, and that's, I get after seven years, I've been writing for them in the, in the trackside magazine, which trackside was like the first time I got actual money for a for thing, you know? So, you know, for writing a story, which was, wow, I mean, I got some, got paid to write a story, you know? And, uh, and the same with the daily paper, but, uh, so 96, I started Airy Auto and I went through there through, uh, speed weeks in 2006. Oh, no, sorry. No, I mean, uh, June of 2006 and then started working, did the PR for the world of outlaws, late models, and then started dirt on dirt after speed weeks in 2014. So um, about eight years at, uh, 10 years at Ariato and then eight years doing the world of world racing. World Outlaws. This is a little bit of a non racing related question. We talked about your father a little bit, an interesting side note to me, your father was older in life when he had you so much, you know, so much so that he was a world war two veteran. Right. And I, I'm sure those yeah. stories were really neat growing up. Where, where was your father in the war and when and all of that? If you give us a little context in, on that. Yeah, yeah. So he was like 52 when I was born in 1973. Uh, so which was, uh, you know, that puts him in, he was retired from his job at, you know, once when I was a teenager. So that's why we got to go to a lot of races. You know, I got very lucky there where he's, uh, he's retired. And so he wants, he likes, you know, likes going to the races and, and obviously would have liked going with me. So we got, we were all summer long. We'd go to the, you know, super dirt series races up in New York, go to Flemington Saturday, East Windsor on Friday and, and other places. And, uh, so that, that was a fortune for me where he was able to get a, get away to be able to go to all these races and, and me be able to, to write about him and everything too. And, uh, and so he was in the, uh, he, he joined the Navy, he was born in 1920. Wow. Uh, and he joined the Navy, I think right around before the war, you know, right World War II start, started. And he was, he ended up being stationed on a, uh, he was in the Navy and he was on an aircraft carrier. He ended up being on the USS Sewanee, who was the escort carrier, yeah. one of the smaller ones. And he ended up going, I mean, at first I think they were in North Africa. Uh, like I kind of went to a couple of, um, they had back in, you know, 10 years ago, they, we found out that they had reunions of all the guys that were on there that had not, wish I would have known earlier, but then he started going like the last five of them that they had. And, uh, and we went to that, and so we got a little bit more information about, like, so that everybody can remember exactly uh, where he was. But he was in the uh, North Africa for a little bit, and then there was most everything else was in the South Pacific. And he was actually kind of fortunate where his his like stretch on the ship ended in 1944, you know, sometime in 44, right before it went back out. The Swanee went back out and was in the Battle of Leedy Gulf which is uh, in like October 44 when it got hit by um, that's when it got hit by kamikaze and uh, I know some you know, dozens of guys died wow. that were on that ship. And, and he couldn't, like he always said, he could have been on that ship. He would have stayed on the ship where, where like where I guess it hit would have, could have been him, you know, that's what like his would have been his battle station or whatever you want to want to say. And uh, so he was off of that fortunately wow. by then. Uh, but he also, he did say he remembers, you know, the he could see the they were like when he was out there in the south pacific uh when the battles they were around i mean he remembers seeing you know japanese planes 
coming across and, you know, he could, I remember him saying one story where he could, they were so low. Well, it was before I think the kamikaze stuff really started. So they weren't hitting the plane and hitting the aircraft carrier then, but they were coming real close, you know, and he said he could remember even like seeing, you know, faces of the Japanese wow. pilot because they were so close. So, um, he was, he was in the Navy for 20 years. He ended up retiring from the Navy like in 60, you know, like late fifties, early sixties. So he was in there for a long time, but yeah, he had some, uh, you know, well, he, you know, he said he had a, his, his stories in the aircraft carrier are probably even more, you know, fun when you talk about like just the daily life on it, you know, that kind of stuff where, you know, the, you know, the, the stuff when they went across the equator and they did that, you know, they did those crazy things where they, they get in and, you know, all the guys when the first time they cross the equator, they get put into the club, you know, or whatever. I'm not sure I got to remember the name, but, you know, they do all these crazy initiation things. So that was well, funny you, stories. Like you that. and I, you and I have that in common, right? My dad was in the Navy during Vietnam, and he was on the Nimitz, right? So, uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. my dad has some of those same crazy naval stories about right, all the, exactly. the time zones and continents and everything. So, uh, flipping it back to to racing, you and I have talked about this privately. But being such a big block guy you were growing up and, and loving those guys and Billy Pouch so much, I kind of want to know, in the Northeast, in that late 80s, early 90s, what was the mood towards dirt late model racing from the big block crowd? Did you hate it? Did you love it? Were you indifferent to it? And then did you did you really hate us when we stole Tim McCready from you <laughs> forever uh, in the early 2000s and you've never gotten him back? Uh, what was what was the mood there? And what, how did you guys kind of view late model racing in New Jersey and Far Eastern PA at that time? Well, I, I tell you what, I mean, what, when I thought of late models, I thought that was because there were cars called late models at Flemington every Saturday night. And there was also cars up in New York called late models and in a Grandview Speedway, Eastern Pennsylvania. But they weren't super late models. These weren't guys, they, you know, Jack Boggs and Donnie Moran and all those guys weren't coming around my area to race, you know. And but so a street, a, a late model at Flemington, just for instance, on a Saturday night was basically a street stock. You know, they, they called them late models. But I just thought, like, man, when the late models, we always were all like, man, that's the time to go get French fries, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was kind of, they were almost a joke at some points, too, you know, because at Flemington, they would have, like, uh, they, had a, they had a pace car. Their, Flemington's colors were always all purple. Everything was purple. And they had this pace car that was a purple car, and it had, like, this big tongue hanging out of the front of it, kind of like a, <laughs> a joke kind of car. And that would be the pace car for the late model division there. So it was, you know, was kind of like, this isn't very serious. This was like, you know, you know, kind of the joke division almost. There's good racers in it, but uh, – so I never really watched them. And it was, you know, even in New York, I mean, there wasn't – you know, it, it was – street stocks basically um so the first time i guess i saw even what a real late model was was probably like when i went to uh to volusia for speed weeks volusia speedway park well volusia speedway it was this then um and i went down there in 86 and 87 of course to see the big blocks and the late models were there and again i i I thought like late models when they come out you're supposed to just go you know you don't watch them you know there was this this isn't big time and i didn't realize all these big guys at that point you know i'm 13 14 years old and i didn't you know all those guys were there i mean donnie moran was there and and i guess you know uh, jack boggs was racing and fred 
you know, and the, the Flintstone flyer Duval was there. I mean, I, I, I wish I could go back there and watch those races because I wasn't watching the races when the late models came out. I was in the back of the grandstand running around with, well, Tim McCready was there with, with his father. I remember us playing football and stuff behind the grandstands. I always, you know, Derek always jokes with me about that, but, uh, but anyway, we're always, we're doing stuff and, and, and I never did it. And uh, the first time, I guess I went, I went to a late model race, uh, to, to see it. I think I went to a hub city 150, like in the early nineties at, yeah. at, uh, at Hagerstown, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool, you know? And, and I, and I seen, and also at that time, uh, late eighties and the early nineties, all those early season races that the big blocks would always go down in March and, and stuff to race at, at Hagerstown, just, you know, unsanctioned races. And, um, and they'd run like a double header with the, with the late models. And then they'd a lot of, in this, several times even kind of an annual event they'd run like the winter bash where the late models the and modifieds ran a f- extra feature together so and it started opening my eyes to late models I'm like yeah, these are pretty cool these are serious these but aren't street stocks you say you all know? you say all that you you didn't really think mccready would leave you like a scorned lover for us right like he did i mean he just <laughs> abandoned big block racing for late models right threw yeah. you threw you to the side kovac is what he did yeah, I don't think it was that bad. Well, I mean, at that point, I was getting into it more too, so I could see why he was doing it because he he saw the money involved, yeah. and, and and I was at Ariana, so I was covering race. I went to like you know in '96, I went to the Pittsburgher when hit past Tim hit past Bloomquist yeah. on the last lap. I went to I covered the '97 Dirt Track World Championship at Pennsboro, and um, I you know like the the anniversary race that paid fifty thousand at at Hagerstown and I went to stars races at West Virginia motor and Cumberland. I mean, I was covering late models here and there. And, and, and I, and I saw it and, and actually, I mean, McCready wasn't the first modified guy, really. I mean, back in early two thousands, the, the sweeteners plus team, which he wasn't even racing for then up in New York. Uh, he was friends with all those guys, but uh, Vic coffee and Danny Johnson were the guys, the modified guys that first went, started running the late model when, uh, when sweeteners plus got late models and McCready draw, you know, he ended up being buddies with them and they said, Oh, well, you know what, you want to run the late model one of these nights? And the first night, I remember I think it was when the big blocks were at Eldora in 2002, I believe. Yeah. And he got into the, with the Johnny Appleseed was his first late model race and, and he liked it. And it it was like, you could see it was coming that he was going to end up driving for sweeteners plus eventually. And then, then it happened in 2003, you know, and they, and, and he saw it because there was more opportunity there, I think, you know, like there was just, and, and at that point, late modified racing wasn't, I think the purses were actually kind of down a little bit, you know, like when his dad raced in the nineties, I think they paid more on weekly nights, you know, like he could, his father could run for $2,000 to win Friday, Saturday, Sunday, yeah. most, most of the time within a close little range. That was great money. And then the super dirt series races were paying just as much as they do almost now, you know? So it modified racing, you could really, there was a lot of guys making a living at it. And then it started, the weekly stuff started coming down and McCree like, uh-huh, I got to, you know. So I, I don't think any of the modified people didn't, I, I never felt like they were like, man, he's abandoning <laughs> us. I don't think it really was ever like that. I mean, I never felt that way. And I don't think everyone else did because, because uh, they, they could see what he was doing because he was, and they, they, they knew that that was the way he could make more money. 
the one cross you mentioned a little bit, but and we're going to dive into, like I said, this year and next year stuff. But I wanted I wanted to bat around some of this historical stuff with you before we got there. The big crossover, like you said, you know, the late models ran the Syracuse, the Moody Mile at Syracuse. Donnie Moran won a race there. There was a mm-hmm. little bit of that up there, but by and large, Volusia was kind of the crossover, right? It was where a lot of northeastern people saw late model racing or big block people saw them. You know, WRG now has done this fantastic job with Volusia. It's like this sprawling complex that kind of rises out of the sky when you drive on Highway 40 through Florida. But man, old I wanted to, old Volusia. It was something different, wasn't it? It was. I, I I really wish people could like appreciate like 1992 Volusia and what it was like. You were there, Kovac. It was a whole different thing, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, they were some long shows. They were just like drawn out. I, I, I went to Volusia 86 and 87, you know, when I was in high school with, you know, to see the big blocks and stuff. And I didn't go back again until cause then I think, well, that one year was like early nine or 89. I think they, they ended up paving the big track, yep. you know, and then they made the little track a few years ago. You know, they made it a dirt track a few years later. I never was there for, for when it was dirt. Uh, but then the big blocks weren't really down there for a while. And I was in college, so I couldn't just get away to go for, the week there and like i think they ran like in saint augustine and the big blocks in 95 or something but uh 88 98 the modifieds came back to volusia at the big track when they put the dirt back down there and i was i've been i've been there every year since then uh, either covering the big blocks or now you know with the late models and actually in the late 90s and early 2000s when i was there at auto I, I wrote the late model stories too while i was down there so that was a big uh you know a, a, a crossover like you said and the but i just remember man they just they just were not like it was not so organized as it is now i mean and there was a lot of cars you know i mean they would have a hundred a hundred late models it could be and, and and it was cool seeing that much but the late the way they would drag on and i i remember one year when i was at area auto and, and mondays was still our deadline day so i would stay and i'd be in in florida for the deadline day and, and it was like when we were starting to first do like sending photos over the, you know, you know, transmitting them. You know, so I would be down there with a scanner. A photographer would come to me at the condo I was staying at on Monday, and I would scan them and send them up to Area Auto. And that Monday was always the first night of the, you know, late models and model, uh, first late model night. And that one year, I got done with all the work I had to do to send Area Auto for coverage at, like, midnight. And I'm like, uh, this race isn't. There's no way the race is still going on in Volusia. I call over there. They're not even in a B main yet <laughs> because they were, at midnight, it was no rain delay. Uh, I drove out there and the feature st- ends at three in the morning or two in the morning or something. And I mean, I, I, there was other nights too. Remember they had, they used to have the, the asphalt when they made the small track asphalt and the big track was dirt again, they'd be running at the same time. Yeah. And, I, and you could, it was for one ticket. You could go run, see super modifieds and late models on the asphalt and then walk over and see the big blocks and dirt late models on the dirt. And, and they, I know I sat there watching the super modified race at two 30 in the morning one time <laughs> on the asphalt track. And it was just crazy. I mean, they would just run all, they just would run all night. It was, I love it now over I, by 10, 10 30. One question <laughs> I have for you. And it, it, this is one I think I want, this is the journalism nerd in me asking these next couple here. What are the biggest challenges you think to covering dirt late model racing? And I'm going to leave that a little open-ended because I have some ideas too, but what are the biggest, man, if I say, hey, Kovac, what's the hard, Kovac, what's the hardest part about this? What are the biggest challenges? What would you say? Well, it, it's, it's not like when you go to a NASCAR race or something where they're bringing drivers to you. 
uh, or giving you much information. It's like, it's not like you got like, you got to kind of do it all yourself almost, you know, you got to go up there and get lineups. You got to go up there and, and it probably it was used to be even worse before now, at least you could probably look on, you know, my race pass and get lineups for heats and qualifying. And before that, you just kind of had to do it all, get it all yourself. And so you're, you're kind of on your own a little bit, you know, I mean, it's, it's not like they're feeding you a lot of information, which it, it's a challenge. I mean, it always is, you know, I mean, in like the, the timing and, and stuff, I mean, you don't, you don't know how the things aren't going to go according to schedule and stuff, but, uh, but I mean, I, I, I'm always kind of like that because it's, yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I don't, I'm not, I've never been like a, like a big press conference kind of guy that I want to go reporter. I mean, where you want to go to the press conference because I feel like, it, I mean, you're giving your question to everybody else, you know what I mean? You know, right, I want right. to talk to the guy myself. And, and, uh, and so that's, that's kind of like a, a good thing, I guess, about late, about dirt track racing, where if a reporter wants to get what, what they want to get from a driver they got to go to them you know uh some they could be but it, it could be a challenge to get there sometimes you know it's like it's not always everybody's not always uh, available or or something but uh that, that's that's kind of i don't know i guess that's kind of why i like it i guess some of the challenges are what i like about it you know what i mean i had uh i had this question sketched in my outline uh before the dirt track world championship and then we can talk about how topical it became after the dirt track world championship where you were this past weekend how often do you have people contact you and or come up to you when you're in the pits and say, I hate how you did that. I don't like how you did that. You didn't handle that right. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. And, you know, again, I'm a pretty transparent guy. I'm just going to say it. You know, the whole Mark Richards, Chris Ferguson thing after this past weekend, Fergie, Fergie felt as though we didn't really get his side of the story early enough in the process. Eventually you talked to him, and I think Chris seems fine now. But it was funny. I had this question sketched out. Ferguson was not happy right away this past weekend after I wrote this question last Friday. Um, how often does that happen, Kovac? And you can even you know use the Ferguson thing as an example if you want to from this past weekend. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, it happens. You know, I mean, it's I've been writing now for, what, 32 years, I guess. Like, <laughs> man whatever but um but yeah you're gonna have that it's like because everyone sees things from their own perspective too and you try to come down like in the middle i think i've done it long enough now where i don't i, I don't get it too often i mean like there's always gonna be i didn't like the way that was or you didn't give that guy the, the proper credit or you you know you you saw that differently and but I man, I mean, I've written so many stories where i kind of I, I can almost sense like if i write it like this this is how they're gonna react someone else will react, you know? And I mean, like when I was back in, you know, when I second year I was writing, uh, or well, it might even have been the first year, I think actually in 89, I mean, remember Billy Pouch was my favorite driver. And, and then I started writing and the first guy, I think that really got mad at me for writing about something was, was Pouch because I said that he ran, uh, he did a bonsai move at Hagerstown on the Oktoberfest and, uh, and it, it, he didn't have enough room and he ran in and he spun out Bob McCready. <laughs> so he got mad and didn't want to, you know, like uh, he didn't talk to me like after a race, he won a few weeks later in Georgetown, Delaware. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe this. This is my favorite driver, you know? So, so, but then, but again, like I made me realize like, you got to look at what you write. I mean, how is that going to be perceived? Or, yeah. Can somebody really take that the wrong way? And, and like, I wouldn't write that now. I wouldn't write like, I mean, I had a guy, you know, from wanting to beat me up at, uh, at, at, Super Dirt Week at Syracuse one year while we were just hanging out after the race as a brother of a driver. 
Like, I mean, they, they, I was walking around with people and the, the brother, the driver was sitting in the car by the campfire area. And he's like, he asked somebody, is that, is that Kovacs? And I'm like, and she, person was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, tell him to come over here. And he's like punching the wall, like the side of his car. And I'm like, oh man, this guy's mad. He's like, why'd you write that? Why'd you, you know, about my brother, you know? And I'm like, oh my, and I'd written something about his brother causing three cautions and wrecking the most havoc in the race, you know, or something. It was a race that had a million cautions. I shouldn't have rode it like that. And it was a rookie, but I was able to, I was able to temper that down because I, I brought up the year before when the guy was a rookie and, and his brother, uh, and I mentioned him, he's like, Oh, I didn't realize you mentioned him doing really good. That I'm like, well, Hey, see, you only look at the negative, but, <laughs> Did you but get that's, it? The, that's the thing. The, the, you know, the, people the, like look at the negative more a lot. Oh, you know? no question. Did the whole thing, the whole thing with Fergie too. I think you guys ended up speaking and kind of got all that squared away. Yeah. It was, a, uh, it, you know, that kind of rolls into my next question. You know, you, Actually, you know, before I get to some Dirt Track World Championship stuff, a frustration I want to share, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. My biggest frustration probably in nearly 15 years of doing this now is our we're handcuffed on our ability to break news sometimes because our relationship are so good. What I mean by that is, hey, we have a great relationship with, let's call it the Longhorn folks, right? Or whoever. I'm just using them as an example. Uh, and we know mm-hmm. a piece of breaking news that's coming out about a guy moving to a car or a chassis switch or something like that. Hey, we know you know this. We wanted to let you know this, but do not break this story until we tell you you can break it. Well, listen, Dirt Track Racing is a very small sample size mm-hmm. group of people. You can't, Okay, we're going to respect the relationship and not do it. What always happens, Kovac? Somebody's brother yeah. of one of the crew members or wives of one of the crew members puts it on Facebook, and then people come to us and say, man, how did you not have that story? Well, shit, we've had the story for three weeks, but we didn't break it. I know that frustrates Todd, and I'd imagine that frustrates you too. Todd's to the point where Todd almost wants to be like, screw it. We find it out. We're breaking it. End of story. Uh, I know exactly. That's that's 100% correct. I mean, we... It, it, but it, it is such a small thing. We try to like, we don't want to burn bridges and stuff. You know, we see these people in the pits all the time and, uh, and you gotta be able to still, it's not like we're an NFL reporter where we're like away, you know, like how I many, how many of these, a lot of those guys never even see a, see a player, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're just reporting from a distance and, and they could be more like, oh, sources indicate, you know, like, or sources say this guy's doing this or whatever, you know? And, and, and and we have a lot of that, but it, it could, I don't know, it just seems like it could mess things up. I mean, I, I think sometimes I've had it where, like, we have been like, all right, we're, we're putting this up. And then next thing you know, they're getting phone calls from, that's when we get, seems like when you get the most phone calls. Oh, you put that up too quickly yeah, now. Yeah. Like, this guy is, is, is upset because, you know, and this guy's, and then his sponsor's upset. You know, like, I mean, there's so many. Yeah, you, know, you know factors i guess that you, you think about like that that are a part of it uh just a simple driver change or something you know or, or going to a new team for a guy and, and we try to respect it as much as we can but i mean at least don't go telling everybody on the crew and stuff and let us <laughs> <laughs> you know like i, I really think I, like gr smith a few weeks ago just called me out of the blue and said about him hiring uh, Ashton, uh, Ashton Winger to drive it and hadn't told anybody else that yet. And he's like, yeah, I just want to let you know, you know, so I'm not putting anything out until you put anything up, you know, Hey, that that's good. You know, it, it, I think you get more people are going to see it more if it ends up being on dirt on dirt, than if it would just be a regular press release that goes out, you know, and then it comes, you know, I mean, it just, it just seems like that would be the, 
the the bigger impact if you just show it like that and we like like hopefully uh a, a lot of people will, will keep doing that help us because we haven't burned them, I guess, you know, and, and put it out too. But it does get frustrating. It does. No about it. Let's dive into this year, next year. And we did a solid 30 minutes that I knew we'd do on historical stuff and just frustrations that we have. <sighs> you were just at the Dirt Track World Championship this past weekend. What what a win for Ricky Thornton Jr. Uh, it, was, it was pretty cool to see that guy who I think we've all thought, hey, this is one of the most talented pure race car drivers in the country get a win. But Give me some news, notes, and nuggets from what, you know, really, you think about it, Kovac, the dirt track used to be kind of the season ender, right? We finished in October with the dirt Mm -hmm. track. It feels like there's two full months of racing left at this point, but (laughs) empty the notebook uh, for me from the dirt track this weekend. What do you got coming out of Portsmouth? Oh, yeah. I wrote a story, uh, like, right on Friday when the rainout day, just about this one was, but Mason Ziegler, he he debuted a new number, uh, if you you noticed there. It wasn't a 25Z anymore. It was a 9Z. Uh, and that was in honor of his brother, uh, Freddie, who passed away uh, about two months ago. Um, uh, suddenly, he was a year and a half older than Nason. And, and, and Freddie had run a number nine when he raced uh, brief. He, wasn't, he didn't race as long, that long. He, he kind of preceded Mason in the, in the racing, that roaring knob in the tracks around there, Western PA. Uh, and Mason like always liked the 90, number nine number. His number 25 was only... He said because he left, he bought a car from Ernie Davis and just left the number on there and just <laughs> stuck with it, you know. So it wasn't like a sentimental thing for him. So putting that number nine on was was definitely sentimental for him. And uh, he said he's keeping that now. And uh, and and so he ended up he qualified for the race but dropped out early in, in the hundred lapper. Uh, Josh Rice too. I, he was this a pretty neat you know kind of story where he he wasn't even there on Friday before the rain. I mean they had fifty eight yeah. cars in the pits and. And he wasn't there because he, him, and James were at a wedding. Uh, one of their best good friends uh, was got married on Friday, and both of them were in the wedding. So Josh was like, "Oh man, geez, uh, you know, I, the damn, I know, I love you, my buddy, you know, but man, you're getting you're getting married on Dirt Track World Championship <laughs> week, you know, I can't run the race now." So, but uh, <laughs> I talked to Josh's uh, father, Jerry, on Saturday, and and Jerry said that man, Josh. He started getting calls from Josh while he was at the wedding and been like, man, it looks like, looks like Portsmouth is getting rained out tonight. Hey, Dad, can you go over there and get that car ready? Can we go tomorrow? You know, and, and Jerry's like, oh, I'll, I'll see. I mean, we didn't have the nose on it, he said. He had to do some other stuff, so we got a few people. And while Josh and James and James are at the wedding, Jerry got the car ready, and, uh, and, and Josh ended up showing up and, and, and made the feature. And, and you know, he was another he, – he retired early too, but, man, I thought it was pretty neat where, like, a guy that wasn't even going to yeah. be there – uh, that rain helped them get there, you know. Uh, another note was it's not a race car driver note, but it was good to see Wayne Castleberry, yeah. you know, the longtime publicist. He was at the race. Uh, he hadn't been really in. It's, uh, it's kind of his return to the track. He hasn't been going racing very much this year. He, you know, he was sick earlier in the year. I think it was earlier this year where they had COVID, and, and he's been, like, dealing with some, uh, you know, some skin cancer issues. He had some uh, problem. He had some, like, a nasal uh, had to have some cancer uh, surgery for that. And so uh, he was back and good to see him there, you know, hanging out and, and talking. And I talked to him for a while and we even, you know, we even got to complain. And he said, keep this off the record. Some of the things I'm saying right now. <laughs> now we were just complaining about some things. This is what we need to do to make, you know, uh, you know, and, and it, was, it was cool. Good to see Wayne there, you know, at, at the, at the track. It's a uh, you and I have talked about this last week at, uh, on our Flow Racing Night in America event. 
just the setting of Portsmouth, I think we can all be mature enough to admit that the the racing in Portsmouth can be good, and actually Saturday night's feature wasn't bad at all. A little dusty throughout the night, but damn, that setting's cool, isn't it? Right on the banks of the Ohio River like that. It just it, it oozes DTWC. I know people can kind of you know squawk about the racing quality a little bit. Man, a pure setting and atmosphere, it's probably for you, Kovac, got a little bit of a Super Dirt Week feel to it, I'd imagine. Well, I like it. I mean, there's so many. As soon as you drive in, there's all those campers. And that was kind of like Syracuse always was on the fairgrounds there where, I mean, you come through the gate first and you're driving through the camping areas, you know. I mean, I always saw, you know, I mean, there's all campers everywhere when you would drive straight. The first thing you'd see onto the ground. And, I mean, I like Portsmouth. has like It has has a pretty good atmosphere. A lot of people in the pits. And and I like that big grounds with all those campers and, and, and everything. And, uh, and obviously that river and the bridge in the background is cool. Uh, and, and the racing was, the racer was actually, it didn't rubber up this year, even with all that racing, it, it, it just became more bottom dominant yeah. later in the race. Like in that middle section, it got to be four guys were right up front there, you know, with, uh, with Thornton and, and Overton and, and, uh, who Davenport had come from kind of deep and, and Marlar was in the mix too. I mean, it was like, I'm like, man, this is going to get really interesting. And then they found that the bottom was yeah. the best. Overton kind of moved down and and it, and it kind of settled in, but not because it was just rubber, just because of the the the, the way it was, you know, the surface was. So, but uh, you wish wish be a little, you know, the racing could have been better to the end. But uh, I mean, overall, it's, it's you know, it, it's tough. I mean, you got the, you got the town like half a mile away, you know, restaurants right down there yeah. in the little you know downtown area. It, it's kind of it's a good place for the race. And just wish that the racing would be a little bit better. Yeah. I think we've had enough of a season now as we approach mid-October. DTWC is over. Lucas season is over. The Outlaws only have the World Finals left. To sort of, you know, look at the headstone of 2021, or at least kind of write most of the eulogy for 2021. And I'll take Brandon Overton and kind of set him aside for a second. Obviously, he didn't win the 100 grand, so his chance at a million, obviously. I, is his chance at a million gone now? Because he can win in, out west. He can win more money. I, I, he can't win a million now, can he, or no? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm gonna. I have to actually check with uh, his uh, car owner, you know, David Wells. He had kind of a breakdown. He had shown me at um, uh, of the whole yeah. season at, at Eldor after he won the World 100. I got to kind of like update that and make sure. But I mean, I think he still has like you know. I think there'd be an outside opportunity. I guess if everything fell perfectly yeah. right, he'd have to win uh, like both ran, world. He raced everything. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. He'd have to win everything that he pretty much runs, and maybe even throw in a couple extra races. Yeah, you right. Know? So, uh, you know, that he wasn't planning. But set his season aside, uh, when you look back at this year, call it five to ten years from now, you pull the eulogy out of the archives of 2021, what do you think there's be a couple things that stand out about this year? Well, it's the definitely the, the number of races, I think, this year, <laughs> yeah. you know? I mean, it was just, it really, I mean, like, all the way from the five nights in a row at I-80 and... In, uh, with uh, thirty thousand and fifty three thousand dollar to win shows uh, over that over the course of that stretch there, and I mean that's you, you don't get five nights in a row at, at one racetrack other than when you uh, you know down at uh, at, at Volusia and East Bay the Speed Week stuff when nothing else running. Uh, so I I I thought that like just the the sheer number of races were was pretty. I don't know if it was like making up for last year. You know, I mean, like last Part year, of it, we, for sure, we lost yeah. races. I mean, yeah, you're making up for that. Uh, obviously with Eldora it was, and, um, but it, it was, I, I mean, I didn't know how it would go, you know? I mean, I, w- would everybody, would we still have race cars running at this time of the year, but we had 60 of them at the dirt track world championship. That was a, 
that was a strong car count though and I, I never really felt like the the cars just went off the you know i mean you have pockets here races here and there but uh that that the car counts were kind of bad but uh it, it seemed like it was more it wasn't it didn't affect it but i mean i i will look at this year as, as being the year of like a, a million races <laughs> i don't know if it was if that's a if that's a good terminology with that but but all and also the money starting to rise yeah, yeah. this year was sort of that money rising uh and 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 again with that I, I, you were worried at the beginning of the year, people are putting this big money, more money out, you know, and some of these, a lot of races. And is that a, a overreaction to how many people were at races during the COVID comeback last year, uh, which there wasn't much competition for, for dirt tracks or kind of was under the radar and dirt tracks reopened before a lot of other sporting events and, and things, you know, people weren't going on vacations and stuff as much, I guess. And, and racing had a lot of people. So, yeah. I mean, was that an overreaction this year? But I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it still was pretty, pretty strong most of the year, I, I believe. We're going to talk about those, the big money stuff here in a second, but I want to hit Overton real quick. We've had a lot of greatest seasons ever here lately, right? JD in 2015, Brandon Shepard in 2019. And now, you know, Overton, maybe in 2021, it really does appear, you know, that he, Overton, like you said, maybe he could still win a million bucks. He probably had to win the dirt track to have a million-dollar season. But either way, my God, what a year he's had. How do you think we'll view this historic year for Overton? Is it better than JD in 15? Is it better than Sheppy that year a couple years ago? Is it better than any old Bloomquist have a Tampa year or Moyer in 96 or 7 and Boggs in 95? Is this the greatest dirt late model season ever, what Brandon Overton just did? Yeah, yeah, it is. Because I mean, yeah, there's some of those seasons back in the in you know in the Bloomquist and the Boggs days and all those where they had. I mean, they were in Moyer and them. It seemed like they're unbeatable, right? Yeah. I mean, it, but it, it's 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 really like I mean, Brandon Overton's got to the point where like every race he's at, you can expect him to be in the mix. Yeah. You know, you can expect him to be up there. He's not gonna. Uh, he, he barely has an off night. You know, he's just so and he's just so kind of laid back about him. I talked to him after the race on. He finishes in the dirt track on Saturday, and uh, after finishing second, and and he's just like, man, yeah, I kind of would wish, you know, you, you gotta get accustomed to winning, and it kind of feels bad, but man, I gotta think of, I have to like hit in my head here, and like second place is still pretty good in the dirt track world championship, you know, he's just so it's like kind of cool about that where he can realize it, and um, and yeah, I guess it downport's had a really good year this year too i mean he's had a lot of yeah. he's had some big wins also but he didn't have that hundred thousand dollar win like uh <laughs> that um for two of them for uh for overton which i i don't see how, even shepherd had three hundred thousand dollar win win uh victories in in uh, 2019 and he also got a hundred thousand dollar check to win in the world of outlaws yeah. championship which i mean you could say maybe that separates them a little bit yeah. you know where maybe you know, like, hey, he won a national title too, which Overton is not running for that. But, uh, but I mean, I, I don't see how you could say a season that was he swept a world uh, uh, Eldoro Crown Jewel unprecedented week, and and still kept up, and he won the World 100 again too when he came back. I, I don't, I don't see how you cannot say that's the best season ever it, now, just because of the magnitude of it and it's wild right I, I think as a kid I, we go through these Moyer and Bloomquist and like I said that magical year Boggs had 95 those will never be topped man you really look at it pound for pound the JD 15 year uh Shepard in 19 and Overton and 20 they're probably all better than the best years I know this is blasphemy for some Moyer and Bloomquist fans but shit man <sighs> 
this is pretty freaking impressive. And I think you put it in perspective for me when you said Brandon Shepard could have tied Freddie Smith for his fifth Dirt Track World Champion. Shepard's 28, by the way. You start to realize, like, oh, actually, maybe these guys racing now are as good as those guys were or are. And I don't you just kind of like recency bias. Maybe we think, oh, they can't be as good because they're newer onto the scene. But maybe Overton is as good as these guys, right? I think we kind of lose perspective on that sometimes because the names Moyer, Bloomquist, Purvis, Boggs will always mean so much to us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's always like, you know, that, that uh, you look at quarterbacks or, you know, basketball players or baseball players. Oh, that guy can't, that, that, that new guy can't be as good as the old guys. But I mean, there's going to be time here now in 20 or 30 years and hopefully racing still going on, you know, and, yeah. and we'll be like, man, that Overton, man, that man, he was, oh, you, you should have seen that Brandon Overton, that JD, that McCready, you know, like all, I mean, I, I think we'll be talking about them in the same ways as, uh, as we kind of think of Freddie Smith and, and Boggs and Purvis and, and, and Bloomquist who, who's obviously still racing, but, uh, you know, like uh, they, that's how good they are. We have, we have to like, remember that, that, uh, we got some really, really good talent out there right now. Todd Turner and I were chatting on the phone the other day about this and you and I just kind of talked about it. Let's just get to the point of it now. Just these gigantic schedules and huge purses that have come out in late model racing, all the independent stuff that's happening, right? Um, That's going on the unsanctioned stuff out there. The Outlaws new point fund and their high paying races. And then Lucas Oil drops just a a bomb last week with a 65 race schedule that has 11 events paying 50 grand or more on it. $150,000 for the points champion. For years, drivers and others have sort of complained that we need to get to this spot, and now here we are. I guess I'll just toss that out there and let you react to this cash infusion, and I don't think it's done yet, uh, that we're seeing in dirt late model racing kind of for 20 I, – I, I kind of think it's all of COVID kicked it into gear, like you said, but I want to let you just react to this ginormous amount of money that's being put out there in the sport. Yeah, it's been a it's it's kind of been a quick jump too. I mean, like how many years did the Show Me pay thirty thousand? Right. It's been the whole time it's been. How many years has the North South paid fifty thousand? Now suddenly it's seventy five, and you know, I mean, it, it's something has made him like should it have been going up a little bit like slower like yeah. all these years, or or is it like we're there? There's there's uh, there's something that that changed and made these promoters think that we could do it. You know, I was talking to Rick Schwally, you know, just uh, about it, and and he had said like it's like say for instance the Port Royal Speedway race that's in end of August uh, at a uh, uh, on the Lucas schedule. It's up to fifty thousand dollars next year also, and 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 he said like we we didn't put a gun to their head to say hey you got to pay fifty thousand dollars. We're not doing that to the promoters, um, but those promoters they look at their bottom line i mean and and they and they obviously think believe that they could uh make it work with the numbers the financial numbers so uh i i don't it's i guess maybe things have been going up i mean there's more you know revenue streams with streaming and stuff too i guess and there's other the possibilities there maybe which you know it helps with sponsorships and stuff so um there's a lot of factors going in but this big jump. I mean, sometimes when you see a big jump too, sometimes you get scared looking at that. Like, I mean, is it getting, is it going up too quick, too, too fast, you know, too much, too fast. Will we, uh, I mean, we don't, nobody wants to see it go up so fast where 
ends up not working and then you got to pull it back. You know, you never want to pull back. Well, it's after, over you know? if that happens, right? <laughs> yeah. In my opinion, it's over. Right? Yeah. You know, somebody I really trust, actually two people that I very much trust told me this. They actually think, and get ready for a little bit of a gloomy outlook on this, their exact <laughs> quote, two different people, and they said this almost exactly the same way was, this is the beginning of the end. And I'm like, Jesus, that's pretty dark. And they said, meaning that these purses across the board aren't only... Now, this is just in their eyes. I'm not saying this. They think in their eyes, these purses are unsustainable over the long haul. And not only that, they think it only benefits five or six teams. You know, the JDs, the Rocket House Cars, the Overtons, the McCready's. That as much as we want it to benefit the Jason Fagers and the, you know, the Josh Rices and the Zach Mitchells of the world, that it really won't. That really all this does is benefit five or six teams Again, maybe a little bit of a darker snapback outlook of that. Are they right about that, though? Is this the beginning of the end? What a bizarre way to look at what should be positive news, I think, right? I know. Yeah, that is that is a gloomy, gloom and doom kind of outlook where, man, yeah, everybody should be pumped up. This right. is the, the rate. This is the money that they've always wanted, you know, and, and boom. Oh, this is the beginning. We're uh, we're going down the toilet now because we're paying <laughs> all weird. this money. It's I'm weird. like, really? I mean, come on now. Let's. Let's give it a chance here first. Let's not go jumping to a conclusion that this is the end of the under the road for late model racing because they're paying more money that you've always been asking for. I, I know there you, you you can have discussions about should they've all been fifty thousand to win, you know, like should they be thirty thousand and then other twenty thousand spread around to more people to get more get more money in more people's hands. I, I know those fifty thousand purses are still going to be pretty pretty solid. I mean. Uh, I think Rick Schwally told me, I mean, even like for 10th place is going to be like $4,000 and that's, that's not too shabby. You know, I mean, guess you could always get more, but yeah. everybody always wants more and, and they're giving them more. But I mean, you look at like a, I mean, the point funds of outlaws and Lucas oil, $530,000 each for the top 12. And uh, I mean, 12th places So you're going to, you run it, you're guaranteed. If you finish top 12, you're at least 20 some thousand dollars plus all the show up money. I mean, that's, you know, $50,000, I guess, if you total all that up, 60000 you know, I mean, that's just to, just to your insurance policy there. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, that's what you're going to, you, you definitely can count on coming in. Uh, you need a lot more to make a team work, obviously, but they're, they're, the money's coming and we, I, I don't know. I mean, like there's some races where maybe we'll, we'll, we'll see. I guess we're going to see well, how much they could do. I hope that we don't like really fall down because we're paying more money. Well, I'm a proponent of the two national tours, right? And what's funny is on some level, you know, we compete with them in some regard on the streaming side, right? I'm the general manager of flow racing. We have a streaming service, uh, dirt vision who are good friends of ours have the world racing group streaming service, map TV plus they have a streaming service on their end. So it's weird because you know, dirt on dirt used to broadcast outlaw and Lucas races. And now we do these flow races and we're, we're, we all play in the same sandbox. We're very cordial with them. But I guess what I keep hearing is, you know, with all this big money and the way that Overton had this season, that guys are not going to run tours next year. I've heard this multiple times. And the reason I said I'm a big proponent is I think we kind of lose the foundation of what the sport is if we don't have some folks um, running running stuff, right? Like if we don't have folks running two tours. I do think there's something to that that's the bedrock foundation of late model racing, having these 22 to 23 professional teams out on the road doing this. I think it's very important. I keep hearing nobody's going to do it. Nobody's going to run a tour. I don't believe that. Do you believe that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't believe that either. I mean, 
I think that I agree that uh, the national tours, they definitely a place for them. I, that, that gives like a, uh, I, I know it gives a, a, a something substantial for the world, for the whole like greater dirt race. I mean, greater right. motorsports world to see. I mean, that guy won the Lucas oil championship. Yeah. That guy won the world of outlaws championship. You know, it's not like, I mean, they're going to get a lot of attention just because of that. And, and it's, it's good for the fan wise too. I mean, it, it, you just, uh, you don't want to just have willy nilly races here, there, there. You know, you you have some, you have to have some sort of organization. You know that that uh, that over that gives you a, a good feeling about like uh, what what's coming into your racetrack, and and those definitely, you know, like you, you have a a sense of what's who's going to be there too. You know, I mean that I think that that's pretty important for a race fan to know. I don't want to just be totally surprised. And, well, why wasn't this guy here tonight? Well. You know, I mean, he doesn't have to be because he's not run the series, you know. Um, but I, I, I don't think that um, we, we don't need to uh, just be races everywhere, you know. I mean, like, I, I, and again, and, and, you know, with Brandon Shepard, I mean, Brandon Overton did a great job this year. But everybody's not Grand Brandon Overton. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, Brandon Overton's good enough to like and, and has enough backing where he can go to a race, you know, and not he can go to, a, you know, the the north south 100 and say he didn't qualify being an independent he's not getting in the race he makes nothing all weekend other than some show up money you know or last place money he has a horrible week you know if he would have been a lucas guy he still would have made the race and yeah. been guaranteed money you know i mean you have that insurance and i think the the national tours just have to make sure and which it seems like they're definitely doing now with the increases in the point funds and the purses and stuff that they make it strong enough where they will be able to where you you don't you can't you know that you can give up some of those other races that are non-series races that look real attractive but hey the the insurance of the that you're getting of, of the money wise being part of the bigger group you know i mean it, it still pays off in the end you know i mean you got to give up something sometimes you know i mean you can't do everything you want, you know, and, and to, to stick with a, with a group uh, that's, a, that's still going to be paying. That's going to be, you know, it's solid and you know, it's going to be the money's there at the end of the year. So where is, um, where's this uh, headed though, Kovac? I mean, is this, are, are we going to have $200,000 to win dirt late model races? Are we going to have, and like, again, I don't, I think some people are probably hearing this like, does Michael not want that? Of course I want that. I want my friends and, and colleagues to, to be able to race for more money and cover races that are bigger, and we broadcast races that are bigger. But, I man, I listen, I also have involvement in a racetrack financially and a series financially I have involvement in. I, I'm, like, a little concerned, right? Like, I, I don't know. I just, where is it headed? I would love for you to tell me. Yeah, it could be a twenty thousand to win race. Is like, well, I don't even want to go run that's, that. That's you know? what. That's my main concern. Yeah. Is that I think it's not <laughs> yeah. the two hundred thousand to win. It's a ten thousand to win. Does not seem like that big a deal suddenly, and that is a little concerning to me. Yeah, right. It's, and then it still has to. It, it, somebody's going to win that money, but it still has to be people go see it. If people yeah. don't perceive it as being a big deal anymore. There won't be many of them. It'll have to go down, you know? Like, I mean, I said earlier about, like, Big Block Modifieds with, like, their weekly racing purses back in the 90s and stuff. It got to the point where the, 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 all the others, there's a lot of special races that paid so much that people didn't want to go to the local races yeah. anymore, you know? And so they're like, well, we can't pay that much. Why We're going to just drop those purses down because uh there we we can't afford them because the crowds have gone down because people don't want to just come to the 
so-called regular show anymore, you know? Uh, so the bigger, the bigger things get bigger and the other things have to back up. I mean, it, you, you don't want that to happen. You have to keep it healthy all across the board for everything to keep going long-term. You, uh, you'd kind of mentioned that maybe, last thing I'll say about this, you'd mentioned maybe this will eventually lead to the Scott Bloomquist idea of one big tour, right? One national tour where all the races are 50,000 to win. Unfortunately, I think it's going the opposite direction. I think you have, you know, it flow included. I will include us in this at flow and dirt on dirt. You have your own streaming service that you sort of have to, to, to service and make sure those people have the content they need. Every sanctioning body sort of has their own streaming service. There's other streaming services out there that are hosting races, obviously, to, to, to service their customers, which they should, to be quite frank. I'm not denying that at all. Um, so when you have all those things happening, it's like, oh, there's a business opportunity in streaming. We kind of have to keep it going by this. I think it's the opposite, Kovac. I don't think we'll have one big tour. I think you'll have like five people doing this <laughs> now. So I think we're going the opposite direction of what maybe Bloomquist had hoped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like when he was talking about that, I'm like, what? you know, that that kind of idea was out there. There was no streaming, so you weren't thinking of. I mean, you were maybe uh, maybe would have been thinking at that point about like, you know, putting these on TV and making them, uh, you know, like big enough where like they weren't just being tape delayed and stuff and put on, you know, on ESPN or or, or you know back in the the Nashville Network days or something like that, you know. And now Mav TV, or you're going to put them on live television and make them that big. But, um, but now with the streaming, you know, it's, it's available to everywhere, everyone, you know, and and you do, you need races. If there's only one series that's happening, you know, they're going to be the one that command all the, all the attention on on any particular weekend. And they're, you only can have one person streaming it. You know, you can't have, you know, all the people streaming races. So, and they, they won't have any content, you know? So yeah, it is that I could see that being, uh, a, a detriment to any like you know this is just going to be one big national yeah. series and we just gather every you know like the 20 some guys plus everyone else regionally gathers uh one track for the entire weekend i uh, it's going to be tough to make that happen now with so, so much uh so much necessary racing for content wise i want to before we get to true or false a couple last things here uh what are some other things that happened this year that you think people might not know about or some things that flew under the radar you know we look back at 21 and go yeah it was kind of a cool thing maybe should have got more attention uh yeah yeah, i mean there's those drivers that have come along you know i mean there's some drivers now that I, I think that of uh have developed into like man you gotta watch these guys you know i mean ashton winger like the way he came along yeah. with the with that dirt, with that summer nationals stretch he had, I mean, he really uh, they turned himself into a, a prospect, I think. And Josh Rice, I mean, he went away from just he didn't just win at, at uh, Florence in his backyard, but he won a Lucas race there. But he's also won at some other racing with the you know West Virginia, won at Beckley, yeah. and um, you know, so he he's got he I, I think he has talent that, that could be developed into a. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the next guys, I mean, and, and Ricky Thornton Jr. Just coming on here and becoming a, uh, a full-time late model guy. And that, that was a, that was the person that you thought could do it. Yeah. He had his uh, struggles for about five months without a win until, you know, Saturday night, but now he's done it. And I, I, I think we'll, we'll remember this is a year of some drivers that have, that have come along and, and made next steps. Hudson O'Neill, uh, I think. Become, yeah, yeah. yeah, Hudson O'Neill. I mean, no doubt about him. He won 300 lappers yeah, as a, yep. you, know, it, you know, he just turned 21. I mean, that's pretty impressive. But his father didn't win crown jewels until, what, he was 40, yep. I think, right? Yeah, yep. You know, and 
So here's uh, Hudson, you know, 21 years old, and he's going to be around for a long time. Got an owner that loves him, and uh, and, and that's that's kind of the uh, story of the year. I think some some guys have really – we've developed some talent, I think. Give me a, a look at 22. Uh, we're not that far off from 2022. The Wild West shootout will kick the year off uh, less than two months from October, November, November, less than three months from now. Excuse me. I had to do the math in my head. We're two and a half months away from the start of the Wild West shootout uh, this year at Vado uh, Raceway Park or Vado Speedway Park in New Mexico, a gorgeous facility where we'll be at this year. Uh, give me a few predictions. Do you have any thoughts about 2022 you'd already like to predict? Hmm. That's what I mean, we've talked about Hudson O'Neill. Should I just go out and just say Hudson O'Neill is going to be the Lucas Oil champion I, I next kinda year? I kind of don't hate that, huh? actually. It, 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 we don't know you who's going to run it, right? That's the one thing is I keep hearing some of these guys are, we're not running a national tour, but then I look at the freaking Lucas schedule and go, how can you not run it, right? Like, it's, I, 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 I think Hudson, McCready, do you think McCready will be back on tour next year? I think so. I think that, I mean, there, how many years have we heard that though? Like, well, I'm not running a tour. Yeah, I'm not yeah. doing this. I mean, there's, there's more options available that they can go not do it. But I still think when they sit down and think about their financial, they look at their, yeah. their, their earnings for a year. I mean, you, you can handle that bad year a lot better if you're, cause your year's not going to be great. You can handle a lot better if you're running a series and, and you have that, uh, you know, outlaws you know too. That, that show up money. And yeah, everything. Outlaws you know, too, I mean, right. it's just, yeah, the same thing with the outlaws. I mean, guys are going to figure out where they can make some money. Hey, you thought, I, I don't think there'll be this mass exodus to, to run just a independent schedule. And because again, there's, there's not as many guys that could do that and make that work as, as you think. I mean, right. Devin Moran had a really great year running independent, but maybe he, you know, I mean, he, when you he didn't have to he he stayed to the tracks that he liked you know he did and and, and was where everything worked well you know but he could still i mean if, if i just think if you're really going to be the the great driver you still need to go i mean brandon overton i think would even agree with this that you got to go win a national championship you know yeah mccready talked about it a little bit when i when i spoke with him about the title this week uh, and winning a Lucas Oil to add to his Outlaw Championship, you know, I mean, he probably thought he would have had a lot more championships by now after winning the first one in 2006. But I think it means something. I mean, it really shows you you're the best of the whole year. And and as long as you could still, if there's money and many available there, I think the, I, I think that they people will will realize that and the talk of like, oh, we're just going to do. It. And everybody does it. How it's going to make that harder? Those races that they go to. If all these guys do it, yeah. you know what I mean? What, you got to um, spread it around. I cut you off there a little bit. Any other predictions for next year? I'm sorry. Oh, no. Oh, sorry about that. I'm like, yeah, no, any other predictions for next year? Yeah, well, 22. Uh, what else you know, What else is going to happen next year, in your opinion? You're saying not everybody's going to hop off the national tours. There's one. What's We had any other predictions for next year? Oh, yeah. I got to think of more predictions for next year. Jeez, I'm not even finished with 21 yet. Now. <laughs> Jeez, it's like it's still, you know. You said Hudson O'Neill, gonna... Lucas Oil champion, uh, maybe, uh, which is, I, I see possible. Kyle Brunig's going to win a World of Outlaw race. I can make that prediction. I, I, I say that, you know. That's yeah. not like the biggest news or anything. But, I mean, you still, I guess you won't have to owe Tyler. Um, uh, he's the got the world finals. If he he's, wins it next year. He's got he's the still, world finals. He still has a chance this year, but yeah, you, know, you you might be falling short. Of, he might be falling short of beating you for that bet. Well, but uh, I mean, he's another guy that I've seen come around. So I I, I could see him, uh, you know, winning one. Um, uh, I mean, uh, what about what about the I, summer I, nationals I, next year? You know, what of the summer nationals? Did they? 
Uh, listen, there is no more dyed in the wool summer nationals homer than me, right? I'm born and raised around Fairbury, mm-hmm. Illinois. I love it. I it's, I love Sam Driggers. I love everything about the tour. You know, you worry though, right? These are now five thousands to wins. Do they jump off the page as much as some of the? You know, I, I kind of think about things like that for next year. Oh. You know, yeah, that that is a very good point. I wasn't really thro- you know thinking about that, but man, those races seem like they're like a thousand to win. Right, now when, right. Like, in the context of everything else going on, you're like. Or even a ten thousand to win summer nationals race, it doesn't seem like it's like as big when everything else is going to be paying much more money. And uh, and it's it's so how does that fit in now? I mean, there's a lot of summer nationals races, and but uh, now if you keep getting these bigger money races, it's just staying home and running the summer nationals isn't as big of a lure for Bobby Pierce and and Brian Shirley and and those kind of guys, you know. They, They'd be like, well, I mean, there, there's now it's it's not like I'm going like, well, I can go ten thousand dollars close to home or ten thousand dollars far from home. Now it's like ten thousand or fifteen or twenty or fifty. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, they have many more. Op- this going to be more options for them too. That you know, even if they're right back in their backyard. Uh, so um, uh, maybe maybe a prediction: Bobby Pierce goes and runs more outside of Midwest because he can. Uh, he could do so many more big races. I mean, I don't know. He could, or do he you, doesn't go for a summer national. Do you reverse you know? psychology that and say all these other guys are going to be doing that? Now Pierce could win 19 summer nationals races yeah, instead of 13, right? Yeah. right? So I think so there's going to be stay here and I could clean up <laughs> some gamesmanship next year, right? Is what I think. It'll be interesting to see. Um, all right, Kovac, that was all good stuff. Uh, it is time for true or false. We end every Rigsby Report podcast with true or false. I've got four good ones for you this week. First one, Kovac, true or false? Uh, this is some serious serial killer stuff here. Um, you eat cereal with no milk. Is that true or false? Well, that's true. I mean, no doubt about Psychopath. it. I mean, I, I just, I don't like, I don't like making my cereal all, uh, all mushy. And, and, you know, when I, uh, when I, when I go to eat it, I want it to be crunchy. I don't, I don't like, I, I, I don't, I drink milk. I don't. I don't. I don't put it in my spoon to eat it. You know, but, that's, but, uh, no, I don't do that. But you, you have to eat it. You have to eat it quickly. You can't. I mean, you don't have to let it sit for a half hour to get mushy. Have you ever considered eating the cereal a little faster in, with the milk? Or no, no, I don't know. It just doesn't. I don't. Uh, milk on cereal just doesn't seem very attractive to me. I think All I'm right. going. I'm staying with my. I'm staying with my my dry cereal. All right. True or false? I I've heard this about you. Someone told me this that this is accurate. True or false? I could pick any date in the summer of '88 through like '92, any date, and you could tell me where Billy Pouch finished at Flemington. I could pick July seventh, nineteen ninety, and you would know the date. Is that true or false? Uh, not like totally. No, I, I mean I, I'm not. I'm not Rain Man in that sense that I can do it that closely. But like I do tell you, like probably late '80s would be a little bit more. Which I like I said, I, I have my notepads here where i do have his uh finishes from especially those seasons i get I, I i once i started writing in 89 i didn't keep that that those statistics for one driver like that anymore as uh you know studiously i guess but uh it, it, i do what i do like what i can do like if you tell me dates and stuff like that i do think of them around like i put them in the context of what happened in a racetrack so that, <laughs> i, I kind of like I mean, I could all, I mean, it's just like, oh, the, you know, uh, you know, 9-11. Well, well, I was at Thompson Speedway yeah, that sure. week, you know, or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's always like, I, I do like remember things uh, uh, in the context of where I was at a racetrack. 
Uh, okay, two to go. Another food-related question. It's we we te- the entire staff teases you about your your finicky food eating and, and mannerisms. Uh, <laughs> finicky, I like that yeah, word. Yeah. True, true or false? Um, number three, you will not eat meat off the bone. Is that true or false? Well, I'm not a big fan of that. I think that's too <laughs> much work to to have to eat to get it off the bone. I'd much rather just have a boneless chicken breast, you know, or or uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not like a. You know, you get one of them uh, chicken barbecues where you got to get the, all the meat off of it. I, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of that. I like I like to be able to eat my just cut it up and eat it right easily. So, but I'm certainly not eating seafood either. So I don't know if you that if you if you wanted to add that to the question, yeah, there's going to be no for that the, lobster stuff and all that. I'm not doing that. That's way too much work to eat. For the fans <laughs> listening out there, this is what life on the road with Kovac is like. I hope you're getting a good feel for it right now. He's up till six a.m. every morning. and He doesn't eat milk with cereal or meat off the boat. Okay, uh, I think I know the answer to this now because you referenced it earlier. Final true or false? Uh, true or false? Your favorite color is purple. And why? I think I heard you say earlier why it might be purple, but is your favorite color purple? Yeah, it is. I had a purple car, you know, in 19, one of my first, I guess the first car that I like, I bought my whole, my completely by myself was, you know, back in the nineties there, I got a purple Cavalier. I mean, I made it and they didn't have a lot of them. There weren't a lot of purple <laughs> Cavaliers out there. And, and I was able to, you know, I, I, I turned down another, I almost, I could have gotten a, a maroon one quicker than the purple one, but I'm like, I want the purple one. So I'm going with the purple. I'll wait a, a week or two to get it. And uh, I, I guess that does, you know, maybe it does factor in with all that purple I saw when we did Speedway. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I mean, everything was purple. They had purple. They had the purple uh, pace car. They had the purple, uh, you know, T-shirts. They had the they had the purple room. You used to go above the, above the office after the races. Everybody would hang out there and drink beer and eat the extra – you know, hamburgers and everything after the race, they called it the purple room, purple, purple carpeting, purple, everything. <laughs> it was, it was cool. They even had Slim man. I think I've told you. Oh, Slim man. I've heard about up. Slim man. Yeah. 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 That was the mascot. He dressed up in purple tights and they hung him from the back of a, of a, of a, a, a tow truck. And he flew around, you know, the whole racetrack. And I, that was pretty cool. Look it, at that. It is. My, How can I not like purple after all that? It is my hope that one day we can recreate that. You could be Flim man someday, somewhere. Maybe we'll do it at falls, <laughs> Kovac falls, man, but it's you and we, you're purple and we're oh, hanging. Hang <laughs> falls, man. There's only one guy who could be falls, man. I think Derek Kessinger. You're right. Oh, he would be great. Oh, that'd be perfect. Let's hang him from the back of the, the tow truck. Kovac. This was <laughs> Flim man's perfect way to end it. This was a, an awesome, um, you know, hour and 15 minutes. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for a while. And I, you didn't hear my intro. Uh, the, the people that I interviewed do not hear the intro, but I wanted to share with, with, with you while I have you on the air still. I really do feel very honored to be your your colleague, right? I, I said in the, in the open that I think you are just one of the, not only the best short track writers I've ever met, um, you know, but one of the best writers I've ever met in my entire life. I feel truly honored to have you as a colleague. We all bust each other's balls all the time. That's part of the gig. You take it incredibly well, Derek. Derek does not take it as well as you, might I add. Uh, but I mean that. I mean that when I say that. You know, we've worked together for a long time now. I've known you for a long time. I just, I, I think more of you than you probably ever really know. And I, and Dirt Late Model Racing is very, very lucky to have you. So I just wanted to pass that along and tell you, thank you for everything that you've done for us uh, for a long time now. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and I'm all you know, thankful for being able to, you know, carve out a, a long time writing about racing and dirt track racing uh, for, at least, I haven't got a real job, I guess, <laughs> for a long time. 
since I since I uh, worked at everything yogurt when I was uh, you know did and made smoothies when I was like fourteen. I didn't. I, did, I wasn't like Robbie Allen where I, I did Lego displays but, <laughs> uh, at a department store. But uh, hey, you know, it's been a long time. It's been it's been pretty cool, and it's always fun. To, you know, I mean, I always always enjoy hanging. The, you know, when we have our our houses at Speed Week yep. and stuff, and everybody just busting each other's balls and stuff all all, all the whole time. It's it's always fun. It's great to be able to have that little, our, our little group, you know, and, uh, and, and do what we, I mean, we all, like, Hey, we, we like what we do. I mean, that's the bottom line is, you know, we don't, uh, we don't hate or we, we complain, but we, but we wouldn't be doing it. That's we right. Like we, it. we are able to complain nonstop about dirt track racing and love yes. it simultaneously, right? You can do both. And we are yes. those people. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kovac, uh, Derek had one final note for me. He said, uh, tell Kovac's wife, Lori, I said, hey. That's from Derek. I don't know what that means. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. It was fun. If you buy a car, truck, or van, new or used, from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois, you get a free lifetime subscription. That's forever. That's a forever subscription, I should say, to Dirt on Dirt and Flow Racing. Literally, until you are, you've been vanquished from the planet, you get a free lifetime subscription to DOD and Flow if you buy a car, truck, or van, new or used, from Bomb Chevy Buick in Clinton, Illinois. Check them out at bombchevybuick.com today. That's B-A-U-M, chevybuick.com. They are just south of my house here in central Illinois in Clinton. I live in Bloomington. They're about half hour south of me, and they also happen to be awesome human beings. You know how people say, what do they like to deal with? I get that question. They're the best. They truly are some of the best people you will have ever met, in this, particularly in the in the truck and car selling game. So if you need a car, truck, or van, new or used, buy it from Bomb, and you get the added benefit of a lifetime subscription to Flow and DoD, and that's pretty cool. I found myself a lot more lately saying, you probably heard it in the podcast, hey, if you see my guest in the pits, stop and talk to them. I think I'll say it again this week. If you want to have a really good Dirt Late Model discussion or even big block discussion for that matter, if you see Kevin Kovac, stop and pick his brain. He will have a lot to say. And you'll find yourself smarter about late model racing or racing in general uh, after the conversation than you were before it. So... Uh, just seriously, if you see uh, Double K, as we call him in the pits, stop and talk to him. Also, I plugged his Inside Dirt Late Model Racing article, but every Wednesday, make sure to check out Dirt Reporters. Our editorial staff does an amazing podcast each and every week. They all really just lay out everything in Dirt Late Model Racing for the listeners. Joshua Joyner's been spearheading that, but it's Joshua, Robert Holman, Kevin Kovac, and Todd Turner. If you're a Dirt Late Model fan, you've got to listen to Dirt Reporters every single week. It comes out on Wednesdays. It's fun, it's light, and you have this, you leave the podcast going, man, I, I know more now than I did an hour ago than before this podcast started. It's a great hour to listen every week. Check that out. Everywhere you can listen to podcasts on Apple and everything else. Uh, next podcast, I think, will be late next week. I'm thinking about our good buddy, Dale McDowell as his health gets back into shape. Maybe we'll we'll call up Mac Daddy and chat with him and get his opinion on what's going on in the sport right now and talk about his history as well a little bit. He is kind of like <clears throat> excuse me, kind of like Steve Francis, the voice, right? You, you you know when you talk to McDowell, you're kind of getting the straight shit, which I love. So thanks to Manscaped and Bomb for their support. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks. 